verses are 1 through 9. So let's stand together in honor of God's word as we read Amos chapter 7. Amos 7, 1. Thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowing. And it was so when he had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God called for a conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood on a wall and made a plumb line, <clears throat> with a, made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will raise with a sword against the house of Rehoboam. Father, help us to understand your heart and your mind the importance of intercessory prayer and the significance of an absolute standard that's never going to waver. God, help us to, to balance these things in our lives as we pray, as we intercede. God, I ask today that you would impress on our hearts the necessity of prayer, the need for prayer, and also, God, your uh, absolute unchangeableness and how those two things work in harmony and how we can be effective in our prayer life. We ask this, Father, we know that you hear these things because we're asking according to your will. And if we know that we ask anything according to your will, we have the petition that we've desired of you. Father, thank you for so many promises as re regards to prayer to encourage us we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Prayer matters. That's what I'm going to share this morning is that prayer matters. The timeless truth that we want to walk away from this passage is that Amos believed in the power of prayer. Amos prayed. God was entreated. We also see a principle in verses 7 through 9 where Amos doesn't pray and where there's an objective standard that God gives. And this objective standard is how God makes the wall. And this standard is uncompromising. How do these two things work together? And we'll, we'll go through this passage and try to understand what God is doing here. God does answer prayer. It does matter when we pray. We're told in Matthew's gospel to ask, and it shall be given to us. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened. For everyone that asks, receive, and those who seek, find, and those who knock, the door is open. And then Jesus reminds us 
what man is there of you whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would God give him a serpent? Now, if we being evil, our natures, sinners, and we know how to give good gifts unto our children, how much more will our Father in heaven give good things to those that ask him? So how does all of this work together? God's sovereignty, God's providence, prayer, God relenting, God's objective standard that never changes. Amos certainly knew that judgment was long overdue on Israel. Their first king was Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat. And as you read through First and Second Kings, a reoccurring phrase comes up over and over and over. They continued in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And that was Israel's past history for 200 straight years. Israel, the northern kingdom, never had a king to follow after God's own heart, like David. So Amos was well aware that judgment was coming on this nation. In Amos 2.6, thus says the Lord, For three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away the punishment, because Israel has sold the righteous for silver, and they have forsaken the poor for a pair of shoes. Amos 3.1, Hear the word of the Lord, that he has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from Egypt. <clears throat> saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Amos 4, 6, and 12. And I have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want for bread in all of your places, yet you have not returned to me, saith the Lord. God sent drought. He sent plagues. He sent mildew. And yet we find four times it says, Yet you have not returned unto me. The conclusion in verse 12 says, Therefore thus I will do unto thee, O Israel, because I will do this, prepare to meet your God. In chapter 5, the Lord pleads through the prophet for the people to seek the Lord and live. He says, No longer seek Bethel, a house of worship, no longer go to Gilgal, a historic site where the reproach of Israel had been rolled away, no longer seek Beersheba, where Abraham entered into a covenant with God, but instead seek me, for these things will come to nothing. And then in Amos chapter 6, we have a strong rebuke, the entire chapter of a nation that was self-reliant had grown lax in its spiritual endeavors and had failed to do any serious spiritual evaluation. And so judgment was ripe. When we get to Amos chapter 7, we have a complete shift in Amos's ministry. His preaching now is through visions that God gives him. So his message changes and his method changes in 7 through 9. These visions are meant to reveal that God is dealing with Israel severely now and that his patience have come to an end. The refrain, the Lord showed me, is repeated three times in the passage that we looked at this morning. Verse 1 thus the Lord showed me. Verse 4, thus the Lord showed me. And then in verse 7, thus he showed me. Behold. We get to chapter 8 in verse 1, thus the Lord showed me. So now God is giving a series of visions with a new message. And so the method has changed, the message has changed, the visions are meant to reveal that God's long-suffering has grown to an end. The sad verdict 
is that God will not pass by them anymore. Look at verse 7, the latter stage of verse 7. Thus the Lord showed me, and then we get down to verse 8. Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. Go over to chapter 8 and verse 2. He said, what do you see? I see a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. So the method has changed. The message has changed. Amos teaches us that God is extremely patient that God is long-suffering. For 200 years, they've walked away from God. They have set up their high places. They have calves in Dan. They have calves in Bethel that they worship. They have done away with the Levitical priesthood. They have made priests after their own choosing. They have done away with the feast days, and they have set their own religious calendar. And yet, in spite of all this, God is long-suffering. And in chapter 5, God pleads for them to seek him and live. Amos 7 also teaches us that God has a standard that is objective. An objective standard comes from outside of you and I. It's a plumb line. An objective standard is not based on human feelings or emotions. The plumb line, the level, it doesn't ask you how you feel about it. In fact, when I get done building something, I feel pretty good about it usually. And my wife will look at it, and she's got a different eye. (laughs) And she said, that's not straight. Every post I put up. She looks at it and says, that thing's leaning. A plumb line doesn't care how you feel. It doesn't care about your opinion. It cares about one thing, and that is what is true, what is factual, what is truth. And so God, through Amos, is telling us that he has an objective standard, and that is truth. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. God is perfect in his holiness, and therefore his judgments are true and righteous altogether. So Amos is teaching us a lot just about God's character and the importance and the necessity to pray. I want to answer a couple of interpretive difficulties here. And for the casual reader... We don't really think, what does it mean for God to relent or for God to repent? But for the serious student of the Bible, it causes you to pause and wonder, what is this all about? Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should relent. God doesn't change his character Micah 3, 6. I am the Lord God, I change not. So in what sense does God relent? Well, there are several ways that people have tried to explain this. And one of them is through what theologians call meticulous theistic determinism. And I, I don't agree with that approach, but there are godly men and women who take that perspective on the Bible that God has meticulously determined every single event and therefore God really doesn't change his mind. He doesn't really relent. Everything has been decreed by God, including your sinful thoughts and your sinful actions. And the reason I reject this is because if I look at this passage, that's not the way it just naturally comes across. It seems as if God genuinely has relented and changed his dealing with Israel in this passage. 
It also means that God takes serious our prayers. And that prayer is something that you and I are to invest in that really matters. And that's the way the passage just seems to naturally flow. Let me illustrate the problem in a passage from 2 Kings that illustrates that, yes, God does not relent in changing his mind in the sense that you and I think of changing our mind, but that prayer does affect the outward circumstances for humanity. Elisha was about to die, and he was instructed to go to King Joash. The Syrians had been defeating Israel time and time again. And so Elisha instructs the king to take his hand and grab a bow. Elisha then puts his hand on the king's hand. Then he tells the king to open the window toward the east. He says, now I want you to shoot an arrow. And this arrow is signifying God's deliverance from the Syrians. So he shoots the arrow through the open window. Then Elisha instructs him to take the remaining bows and strike them. He strikes three times, and then he stops. Elisha's response is anger. So that tells me that meticulous determinism is not the theological area that I want to land on, because the anger shows that the king was genuinely responsible for what he did. Elisha then says, you should have struck five or six times. Should have implies that he could have done differently. You would have struck the Assyrians, I'm sorry, the Syrians, with total devastation, Elisha says, implying that God would have if the king had had the faith to believe God for more. Now you will strike the Syrians only three times. So that little story teaches us that the lack of faith will produce a lack of prayer. A lack of faith will produce a lack of prayer. And a lack of prayer will yield little and futile results. Now, there's another extreme that I think we want to avoid, and this theology is really, really growing in popularity today. And it's partially because of the wealth and the health prosperity theology that's being spewed. And it's known as open theism. And open theism, I think, is worse than meticulous determinism because at least there God is sovereign, God is in control, God knows the future to the end. But in open theism, God's omniscience is limited and he neither knows the things that are contingent upon man's will, nor is God able to see the future completely. God does not have complete and total power over what happens next. So we reject that wholesale. Well, where do we land biblically? How do I take seriously the words that the Lord relents without doing disjustice to the very nature and character of God? I think there's four things that will help us understand this passage where it says that God relented, this will not happen. First of all, we've got to remember that God is all-knowing. God knows everything from the beginning to the end. Secondly, we don't need to confuse the fact that God is all-knowing with the 
idea that God is all-determining. Now, certainly, God has unalterably, unchangeably decreed many things in the Bible. God unalterably and unchangeably decreed that the children of Israel would sojourn in Egypt for 400 years. God unchangeably and sovereignly decreed that the first Passover would take place. God unchangeably and sovereignly decreed that Ruth would travel back and that she would be in the line of King David and Mary Boaz. God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed that Mordecai would discover the plot to king to kill and assassinate King Ahasuerus, and that God would sovereignly and providentially provide a deliverer through Queen Esther. God providentially and unchangeably decreed the second Passover, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and 50 days later, God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed that the Holy Spirit would come down at Pentecost. God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed that every single word that was inspired and written in this Bible would be without error and without mistake. Where you don't want to go is say, because God has done these in certain times and periods for his unique revelation and for his bringing about salvation to all humanity, to then extrapolate that and say that God does this in every circumstance. Because to do so would be to undermine the uniqueness of those very events and the writing of Scripture. If I believe that everything was meticulously discerned by God, I would be able to say that every word here on my notes God has meticulously decreed, but I cannot say that with authority, but I can say that about the Word of God. So, what else do I, I, I have to come to? God knows everything from the beginning and the end. That doesn't necessarily mean that God has determined everything. God does not change his mind in the sense that man changes his mind. We are limited in what we know. We are limited in what we know about someone else's personality and their thoughts and their character. However, God is not. He knew exactly what Amos was going to do before Amos even did it. It didn't catch God off guard, and God didn't have to scramble and think, okay, now what am I going to do that Amos has prayed? Secondly, we, as humans, can and do act in ways that are not consistent with righteousness or compassion. God, on the other hand, never changes his mind with regard to his holy character, his justice, his faithfulness, or his love. This is why we can have complete confidence that God has judged me righteously as a sinner, but as I place my faith in Christ, that God is both just and the justifier of those who believe in Christ. Man's free will is not some kind of superpower which can obligate God to gratify our wants. That is not what prayer is about. God answers prayer in accordance with his perfect will, which is ultimately the perfect thing in our lives. It's what we need, not necessarily what we want. And when God answers prayer, it also will bring him supreme glory. Intercessory prayer must be moved by compassion. Thus the Lord showed me. 
God revealed things to Amos that moved him to prayer. If you and I are going to be intercessors for one another, and we are going to take serious to pray for one another, we must be moved with compassion. We are moved by compassion, by seeing things through the divine eye. The word showed me is talking about a revelation of the mind, the spirit of the heart, the eye. Behold, the Lord is forming. This is symbolic of judgment. The locust has always been a symbol of God's judgment. It was a literal locust plague that struck the Egyptians. In the book of Joel, Amos, uh, book of Joel, again, locusts are used as a type of God's judgment. And so whether this is a literal locust plague or whether it's symbolic of judgment, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I read a lot this week and studied it and tried to figure it out. And I lean toward the, 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 just a literal interpretation here because there's nothing in Amos that says that we should take this as an army of invasion and that King Jeroboam II survived one invasion and then a new invasion is going to come and it's just going to devastate the land of Israel. I think this is a legitimate, a, a, a real literal plague that's going to come. However, it could be an army or a force that comes through. But regardless, the point is that Amos was moved with compassion. And if I am going to be an intercessor, and I'm going to take prayer serious, when I see a need, when God shows it to us from our heart, we've got to have a compassion for those around us if we are going to be serious intercessors. Notice the timing of this locust plague. It was after the king's harvest. It was after the king's mowing. So in other words, the locusts were going to come when the crops were for the populace. This was going to be a devastation on the entire populace of Israel. And Amos pleads with God. Notice the prayer. O Lord God, forgive. That's an imperative. But we find a little particle in the Hebrew, and it's translated, I pray. Sometimes it's translated, please. Sometimes it's translated, may it be. But it's a softening of an imperative. You and I, when we come to God and we pray, we don't command God to do anything. We entreat God and we plead with God from a lesser to a greater. And that's why that little phrase there, I pray. And it's a passionate prayer. It's a felt prayer of his heart. So the request is with passion, but it's also based on a knowledge of the character of God. We cannot pray effectively unless we know the character of God. Amos obviously understood the character of God. Exodus 34, 6 God speaking to Moses, the Lord passed by him, and the Lord proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness, and abundant in truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. So God does not change his mind in the sense that we change our mind. God does not change his character. God foresaw all things. He sees the beginning to the end. He knew that Amos was going to pray, but that does not alleviate our need to pray. Jesus taught the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. He says we don't have to pray with vain repetition as the heathen do because the Lord knows that we have need of before we even ask him. But does that negate the need to ask? No, it doesn't. That's our responsibility. And to trust what we don't understand about a God who already knows what we're going to pray and ask for. The request needs to be selfless and humble. 
Look at his request. O oh Lord, forgive. And this is why. That Jacob may stand. His prayer was nothing for himself. It was nothing for the nation of Israel's glory. But it was because Israel had been so far beaten down and depleted. He says they are small. That word small means that Israel had been diminished in strength. Israel had been diminished in influence. And it had been diminished in numbers. And so prayer here was based that God, you must intervene. We are powerless and we are hopeless without you. We are told to abide in Christ the same way that a branch abides in the vine, for a branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Without Christ, we can do nothing. So as intercessors, we must have compassion, we must know the nature and character of God, and we must have complete humility, knowing that without God, we can make no difference in this world. And that's the intercessory prayer of Amos here. Verses 4, 5, and 6 is really just a repetition of what we find in 1 through 3. I'll make a couple of comments about what this fire is. And again, fire is a symbol of God's judgment. Now, it could be figurative of a drought, or it could be a figurative of picture of all humanity. And I kind of lean toward that because of the word territory in verse 4. Thus the Lord showed me. God is revealing again. He's softening Amos's heart. He's showing Amos the devastation on God's people. Amos is moved by this. And this fire is a conflict the Hebrew word for conflict literally means to go into court for litigation. And so God is using the fire to bring God's people before a court and to convict them of guilt. And this fire is all-consuming. And notice what it's going to consume. It's going to consume the great deep. This could be the sea of all humanity, and it's going to be so devastating that it's going to consume or devour to eat up the territory. The word for territory can be translated apart, but it has a, a more specific meaning in that it refers to a specific land allotted to his people. It is a possession. It's a chosen inheritance. So what can we say about intercessory prayer in these two paragraphs that we've looked at? Intercessory prayer does not change the character of God, but it does change the outward effect toward man. From our perspective, circumstances have been changed. Yet in accordance with God's divine foreknowledge, God's unchangeable attributes, God is consistent to display his compassion. Second, Amos is teaching us that the power of intercessory prayer is due to God's attributes of unchangeable covenant faithfulness to his people Israel. It has nothing to do with our ability to coerce or to persuade God to do anything that he doesn't want to do or that he's already decided to do or something that he has foreseen us to do. The preaching of Jonah in the city of Nineveh provides, I think, a dramatic example of God relenting, yet being consistent with his unchangeableness. Jonah's instructed to go to Nineveh and preach against this great city, 
and in 40 days the city is going to be overthrown. God does not mince with his words. God is not using this as a metaphor. It's not a parable. God is serious. Judgment is coming on the city of Nineveh. The Ninevites repent, and God relents. Now, did God change his mind in the sense that we change his mind? We change our mind? Absolutely not. Did God know that they were going to repent? Absolutely he did. And so God didn't change his mind in that sense. God did not change his mind in that God desires all men to repent and to turn from sin and turn in faith to a God of mercy. So God didn't change his mind that way. In fact, 200 years later, Nahum preaches to the same city of Nineveh, and this time the city is completely annihilated. So God did bring his justice and his judgment on the Ninevites. The judgment was so severe in 612 B.C., the Babylonians wiped out the city of Nineveh, and it wasn't discovered until almost three millenniums later. So God is serious, and we don't need to make the mistake that God's long-suffering means that God is unjust. The last vision is the vision of of a plumb line. And notice that when he gets to the plumb line, Amos no longer intercedes. Amos gets the picture here. That Israel's judgment now is just, and there's an irreversibleness of what is happening in the nation of Israel. God shows a different symbol, a plumb line. Again, what is an objective standard? An objective standard is an outside source that everyone agrees with. That's an, outside, that, that's an objective standard. An outside objective standard that doesn't come from us, it's not um, based on opinion or feelings, it's also definite in that it is measurable. It's quantifiable. It's undisputed. It's non-debatable. That is the law of God. The law of God, we don't have to debate it. We have to submit to it. Or it brings judgment. That's the law. That's what God's plumb line is doing. Because it's a plumb line, it also shows that man is accountable. Let's look at some of the things that this vision is showing. The Lord is on the wall in verse 7. Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line. The Lord is the one who's standing on the wall. It's not our opinions. It's not our feelings. It's not our emotions. It is the Lord that you and I have to answer to. It is God's word. Jesus said this in John chapter 12 and verse 48. I did not come to judge the world. The word that I have spoken to you, it will judge you on the last day. It's a standard that does not bend. The Lord's law is perfect. The law is our schoolmaster, bringing us to Christ. The Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said to me, behold, I am sending a plumb line and where is he setting it? He's setting it in the midst of his people, Israel. The midst of the people. The law will be universally applied without favoritism. What is God judging with this plumb line? He's really judging the very heart of Israel's worship. Look at the places that he lists here in verse 9. The high places of Israel shall be desolate. This was the heart of their worship. This was their love and their relationship with God. So he's judging the very thing that represents their intimate relationship with God. The high places were a violation of God's law. 
And so he says, the high places shall be desolate. The next thing is the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. The sanctuaries were Dan and Bethel. Those were the two cities where the sanctuaries were, and they had set up golden calves, and they had a whole different priestly order, and those things will be laid waste. And the third thing is the sovereign ruler over the God's people will be judged with a sword. I will raise the sword against the house of Jeroboam. The plumb line was in place. Judgment was going to come. The high places were to be destroyed. There was only to be one sanctuary for Israel, and that was in Jerusalem. The duties of the king are clearly outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 2, we find this. You shall utterly destroy the high places, wherein all the nations which you shall possess serve their gods, upon the high mountains and upon the high hills and under every green tree. You shall overthrow their altars. You shall break down their images and their pillars. You shall burn their groves with fire. You shall hew down their graven images of their gods, destroy their names, and put them out of their places. So where there is clarity of precept, there is also clarity in judgment. Amos as an intercessor. What are some things that we can walk away today saying these are eternal truths that I can anchor my prayer life to? One, we must have eyes of compassion. We must empathize with people if we are ever going to be an intercessor for prayer. It's the effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous person that avails much, we're told in the book of James. Secondly, we must personally invest and take responsibility to pray. Amos prayed based on the character of God and the attributes of God. Therefore, he believed and therefore he acted. Faith is something that God sees in us that he takes account of. This should encourage us to pray. This is taught everywhere in the Bible. Hebrews 11:6 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. He that comes to God must believe that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. But let that man ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven by the wind and tossed. Let not that man think he will receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. John, Jesus said to Martha and Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus dealing with the two blind men in 28 and 29, they came into the house and Jesus said, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yea, Lord. Then Jesus touched their eyes and their eyes were opened. So we must invest personally to pray and to pray believing. Thirdly, Humility and utter dependence on God is indispensable. When we pray, we are acknowledging that without Christ, I can do nothing. Fourth, as recipients of God's mercy, our prayer should be, God, forgive. When you and I have been forgiven much, it should give us a heart to pray for others. Amos doesn't pray here, God, sick them. He doesn't say, God, give them what they deserve. He says, oh, God, they are insignificant. They're small. They will not stand without your help, God. 
Five, faith, and I've already said this, I'll just say it again. Faith is something in us that God takes an account of. So I hope today you are encouraged to be an intercessor. Not that you are going to coerce or to change God's unchangeable mind. But yes, we can affect the outward circumstances that God foresees that are already going to take place. Now, does that exempt you and I from prayer? Absolutely not. In fact, it encourages us to pray, that God knows what I'm going to do before I pray. God knows what I'm going to pray before I pray, and that God hears, and God doesn't need me to come up with vain repetition to try to persuade God with what God already desires to do. So intercessory prayer is really agreeing with the character of God, the unchangeableness of God's compassion, and asking God to do what he desires to do. So I hope I haven't muddied this up so much that you walk out of here thinking, what do I pray? How do I pray? But it was... It was uh, not an easy passage for me to try to go through, not an easy passage to teach. But I think if we just come to the Bible with a childlike faith, reading the words, accepting them for what they say, and believing that God means what he says, and that God does also take serious our lives of prayer. I had a perfect illustration that went out of my mind, so I'm not going to try to figure out, remember what it was. But anyway, there are so many examples in the Bible that we can go to for confidence. I, I'm reading through 2 Kings right now. And God delights in putting you and I in those positions where we are utterly dependent on him. And what it looks like in our mind's eye that God has changed his mind. In reality, God always wanted to do those things, but he wants you and I to agree with him and to ask him for what seems impossible. Hezekiah was a godly king. And he was faced with an immense army from the Assyrian, the Assyrian Empire. He pleads with God to intervene. And God sovereignly works that the king hears about another battle back home, and he says, guys, we've got to retreat. We've got to pull off the walls of Jerusalem. We've got to go back home, and we've got to figure this thing out. He says, but I am coming back. And he writes a letter to Hezekiah. And he says, Hezekiah, don't you be fooled into trusting that your God somehow intervened here because I'm coming back. None of the other gods have been able to stop me, and your God is no different. So Hezekiah brings this letter into the temple, and he pleads with God. And what does God do? Isaiah the prophet is instructed to go to Hezekiah and tell him that there won't even be a single shot of an arrow in this city. The next morning, Sennacherib looks out, and there's 185,000 soldiers dead. Unexplainable. Now, the historians, they all agree that something strange happened, but they don't like the biblical answer. Sennacherib's prism talks about how he had Hezekiah trapped like a bird in a cage. But what changed it all? Yes, God knew that Hezekiah was going to pray, but Hezekiah didn't know that God was going to change. That's our responsibility. And right after this 
wonderful deliverance. Isaiah is instructed to go talk to Hezekiah and say, Hezekiah, get your house in order, for you're going to die. What does Hezekiah do? He says, okay, God, you've unchangeably, meticulously decreed this, so I might as well not pray. I just better accept it. No. Does he, is he an open theist? Well, God, you don't know the future. God, God I, I can somehow coerce you into doing what you really don't want to do. No, neither one of those things. The biblical balance was that God foresees everything, that God is all-knowing, but God is also all-powerful, and that God's character and attributes are unchanging. So believing in that, Hezekiah gets on his knees. He turns his face to the wall. He cries and he pleads with God. And before Isaiah could get even out of the courtyard, he says, go back and tell Hezekiah, I'm going to extend his life for 15 years. So we are to ask, because without asking, we won't receive. We are to seek, because if we don't seek, we will not find, and we are to knock, because when we knock, God opens those doors, and the character of God is unchangeable. If we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the unchangeable character of God give good things to those that ask him? But let us ask in faith, nothing wavering, as it says in James. Let's pause for prayer. Father, we are praying again, yes, Lord, because we believe that you hear and answer prayer according to your perfect will. And because, God, you will put in our lives that which is best for us, not what we necessarily want, but, God, that which will create the most spiritual character and Christ-likeness in us and that which will bring you the supreme glory. So God, we confidently pray because we believe with all of our heart that you know what we have need of before we even ask. God, we don't have to pray with vain repetition. We don't have to somehow try to coerce or twist your arm, God, because you are a good and loving God. You are also a just God. And so, Father, I thank you that you are both just and that you can justify the ungodly. In Jesus' name.